remarkable that it was the, uh, you know, that it's it's the same proportion as a as a proper vessel today. So anyway, thanks, Jordan. Um, the Torah portion this week is called Noah. You know, Noah rest because. It's all about the flood. It's from Genesis 6, 9 to eleven thirty two, which pretty much takes care of the whole flood deal. Isaiah 54, 1 through 55, 5, and Luke 17, 17 through 20. So I just want to go through the Torah portions quickly to give you a just a little skim over them, some of the interesting things, because again, if we did this Torah portion as a teaching, it would take six or seven hours. Um, it starts Genesis 6 9. Did you get the rain picture? See, that's a better quality, right? So I think I figured that out. But Getty Images didn't have a picture of the ark, oddly enough. <laughs> okay, so Genesis 6 9 is how it starts. It says, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God, which were. You know, we're pr- pretty sure. I mean, we mostly know that stuff. It's Noah Kaya Sadek Ish Tamim Dior. Now, I'm sure that makes a lot of sense to everybody. Noah, of course, is Noah. Haya is that word that we get Yahweh from, mm-hmm. and it means to be. Or, you know, it's it's the whole was, is, and uh, will come. It's just to be. Uh, Sadiq is a word that's translated as just. It, it kind of means to make right. And then uh, Ish is the word for husband. Remember Adam, Ish, Basar went from a man, just a, just a guy, you know, a man. And then he gets married, so he becomes Ish, which is a husband. And then by chap- chapter uh, uh, five, they have degenerated to where he's just flesh. He's Basar. So this is husband. Uh, tamim is a word that means the whole enchilada. It's... Uh, Rarely translated in the King James as the whole enchilada. Mostly it's translated as as uh, entire or complete. And then door is the word for cycle. And you'll see door all through scripture. I mean, you don't see it because you typically read it in English, but it's a pretty common Hebrew word because everything in Hebrew is cyclical, right? So this really means, uh, you know, Noah is, I mean, he... he he is all these things. He's just, and it's interesting, it, it really means to make right. And in the context of the verses just previous, it makes more sense. Husband, the whole thing, cycle, is or revolution of time. So this is basically just saying that Moses is the real deal. He really is. I mean, he's not perfect. And we read it in English to say perfect, and we get all, you know, sketchy about, oh, you you know, he can't be perfect. He's, he's a drunk, right? You know, it doesn't mean that. It means that his heart was for the Lord. And regardless of the circumstances of his generation or the previous generations, his heart stayed for the Lord. He wasn't perfect. He was like us or Jacob or anybody else. He made mistakes. and But his heart was always for the Lord. And that's the picture that we see, I mean, if you remember from last week when we looked at the bat, just the the picture of the house, the tent, and then that word bare sheet, the head of the house, um, the covenant of fire, you know, all of the stuff, the picture of the Lord building a house 
and the house implies a son, and the son uh, implies a wife or a bride, and then that implies children, that whole thing. And to stay in the house, the, the heart of the child has to be, um, you know, with or for the heart of the father or the parents. It doesn't mean they have to agree with everything. It doesn't mean they have to be right every time. It just means there has to be a, you know, a general agreement that these are the rules and, you know, you respect and all of those things that would make a happy house. So Moses, or I'm sorry, Noah is the, and Moses too, but in this verse, Noah is the picture of that. He's a picture of just, he, the world doesn't affect him. The words of the Lord affect him. And then it says Noah walked with God. So this uh, <clears throat> this Torah portion goes on to talk about, um, well, actually it follows, and I, we, didn't, we didn't do this last week, but we probably should have. There's a, at the end of the Torah, the first Torah portion, there's that, that little verse about um, the sons of God came down and married the daughters of men and, you know, you get this whole picture. We're often taught about angels coming down and, and um, having sex with the daughters of men. And then these giants are created and, you know, and all that stuff. So this is in the context of that. But that's not actually true. Uh, if you read it the way it was written. And first of all, if, if you think angels of God are, I mean, uh, sons of God are angels, which typically in Scripture, that's one way that they describe a heavenly being or an angel or whatever. Angels are, don't marry. They don't have children. There's, you know, so this whole concept, an angel came down and, you know, hit on a babe down here and, you know, they had, did some stuff and had a baby. That's totally not right. It says uh, the word giants, if we start at the back and work rearward, the word that's translated as giants is nephil. And it's actually, it means a bully or a tyrant. And they became mighty men of valor, it says, Gabor, or powerful men of conspicuous position. So the, the, the picture, I think, is rather than, you know, angels coming down and doing something that angels can't do and shouldn't do and creating this master race of, you know, just half-breed awful people. The reality is they're talking about Harvey Weinstein. They're talking about powerful people that take advantage, basically, of women. And they're, they're, they're men of conspicuous position. They're bullies and they're tyrants. And that's the way the world was. Because remember, the Lord looked at the world and said it was corrupt and violent place. And I, I'm sorry I even made it. So I'm going to destroy it. So it was, it was out of that picture and of these men, these bullies and tyrants and these violent, uh, uncaring these Harvey Weinstein types, they take advantage of whatever they can, wherever they can, however they can, and they have no conscience. It's out of that background that we're then told Noah is this complete man. I mean, he's, he's, it's certainly not perfect, but he's good. And that should, you know, should bring us some comfort because hopefully that's who we are or who we try to be. You know, we don't, I, I don't know. Uh, if there's anybody in here who's perfect, maybe, but more than likely not. But I think everybody in here has a heart to do the right thing, right? And that's why we are so open to getting sucked in by the enemy. 
because the enemy will come by and just like with Eve say, oh, you know, let's, you know, this is, this would be great. Let's do this. And we tend to fall for it. And we tend to be convinced to do things that maybe the Lord has already said we shouldn't do. But maybe we didn't know he said it. Maybe we didn't believe it. Maybe it's easier to believe, you know, the enemy that's in front of us than the Lord that we can't see. I mean, whatever the situation is, it's easy for us to get off the beam. And that's the story. And we didn't do this either last week. But if you take those 10 generations, you go from Adam who walked with God to 10 generations later, the Lord is saying, I'm going to kill everybody. You know, how did you get from all good to all bad in just 10 generations? And there's a, it's an awesome teaching. You go through the names that we talked about last week, but you go through the meanings of, there's a teaching on each name. And you see it's one step at a time. They started doing this, and then that led to this, and then that led to that, and then this led to the other thing. And pretty soon, you're at a point of no return. And uh, Psalms is, makes the same case. You know, if we start, if we, you know, if, if we listen and what is it, stop, sit, and, or stand, stop, and sit, then pretty soon we're committed to it. You see the same thing in the book of Ruth where the uh, dad, uh, Elimelech, didn't, he, he was in a famine and he didn't trust the Lord. So he took his family, his kids, and to sojourn in Moab. We, I don't want to go to Moab. I mean, there, there's, there, that's a horrible place, especially for a believer, right? You don't want to go to Moab. But he thought that was the best option. So he sojourned. And then he stayed. And then he died there. I mean, he lived his life there. And that's what happens. And this picture repeats over and over and over. It's this word door. It's a cycle. It's D-O-R-E, not D-O-O-R. It's a cycle of these things that repeat until we learn it. So from the very beginning in the garden, you see this, where the enemy was uh, convinced Eve to, you know, to do something maybe she shouldn't have done. And then you get the story of Cain and Abel, and then you get the 10 generations, and and you keep seeing this. It's, it's easy for us to embrace the things that are not of the Lord. And there is a conscious effort by the enemies of God to help us along that path. And uh, Noah was not, he didn't fall for it. And that would be our lesson uh, for that. Remember we talked about Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, where it says, well, in Hebrew, it's akrith rashit. It's end beginning. Out of the end or out of the beginning comes the end. He tells us everything that's going to happen at the end by the things he tells us in the beginning. So all of these things that you're hopefully reading along or learning about Genesis, these are the things that will cycle back through. These are always going to happen again and again. And we need to be prepared and aware. Ecclesiastes 3.15, and I don't have either of those up here, is the same thing. The things that were, are, and the things that will be have happened, or whatever the, you know, the verse says like that. Because it, it's always the same. It's a pretty simple game. The Lord says, this is how I want you to be. The enemy will come and do whatever he can do to try to get you to think that that's not what you should do. And he's been remarkably successful at that.
So from Noah, uh, we're introduced to his three sons named Inflamed, Enlarged, and Authority. Um, you probably know them as Shem, Ham, and Jacob. The earth was corrupt and filled with violence, and the Lord was about to destroy it and bring the flood. And it's interesting that uh, one of the famous rabbinical scholars who wrote in the 1200s, when he's his commentary, and this is his commentary, it's not biblical, it's just what he thought, but from his studies of the book of Genesis, he came to believe, and this is part of his commentary, that the final straw that caused the Lord to just say, I'm done, was when the people codified homosexual activity. It was no longer taboo. It was fine. It was okay. It was even preferred. And the Lord said, that's it. I can no longer deal with this. And the first time I read that was about the time the United States or most of the states had passed the laws making homosexual marriage the equivalent of uh, heterosexual marriage, of the things that God said. So it's just interesting that Maimonides in the 1200s identified that as the exact last straw. And that's exactly kind of where we are today. Uh, the Torah portion goes on to describe the ark, the size, the shape, what it's supposed to do. And it says it's pitched inside and out. And if you've ever built a boat, you probably know you don't pitch it on the inside. You pitch it on the outside. So the question is always, well, why did he insist it be pitched both in and out. And I, you know, I have no idea, but I might suggest that the only reason you do that is to preserve it. So I'm, and this is way out on a limb, but I would suggest that in addition to all of these other things we've talked about, Matthew 24 and Malachi and Hosea and, you know, all these other things that describe what's going to happen at the end, I might throw in there that somebody's going to find the ark. Because why would you pitch it in and out? You know, it, it didn't need to be pitched at all. The Lord could have kept it afloat if it leaked like a sponge. But it's not what he said. So anyway, uh, the flood began on the 17th day of the second month. And in Hebrew, it says it's Kodesh Yom. It's a, it's a holy set-apart day. So this day of the flood, he's describing as a holy set-apart day. And then you, you hear the story about the, the rain starts to fall and the animals start to come and um, Noah and his sons and daughters-in-law and wife are going to get on the ark. <coughs> and in the King James, it's, it says that selfsame day. And I don't know, half a dozen times you'll read that in, in Hebrew, this selfsame day. And it, it's not that you care, but it's etsim zeh, etsim zeh yon, day. And etsim is bone. So it means the bone of the day. And the times you read that in scripture, it's, it's uh, when someone, and I hate to use the word proudly, but they didn't slink onto the ark undercover. They didn't slide in behind a tree. They stood up, they took their stuff, they led their animals, and against, you know, these people had been yakking at him for 120 years, throwing insults and saying, you know, things about them, you can imagine. And, you know, we live in the same sort of climate today. And they didn't care. They stood up straight and in broad daylight in the middle of the day, walked right through the crowd and got on the ark. And that's, 
the picture of how we should be. We, we shouldn't slink away from uh, the world telling us how horrible we are and how terrible we are and what an idiot we are. And if you're so stupid to believe all that stuff, we need to stand up for the truth. You know, and there's the, the old joke about, oh, I've worked at this company for 25 years and nobody knows I'm a Christian. It's like, this is not a good thing. Everybody should know you're a Christian and what you stand for. So this self-same day, the bone of the day, when you see it in scripture, it's because God's people are standing up. They're not fighting with people. They're not doing anything other than exactly what the Lord would have them to do. They walked onto that ark in front of all the people. Uh, God shut the ark. So how many arks are in scripture? Eh? Do we know? Kevin says two. Uh, three says two. Jordan says two. There's three. There are three arcs in Scripture. There's the Noah's Ark. Yeah. And what did it do? It held the testimony of God, right? There's the Ark of the Covenant that's in the tabernacle. What does that do? It holds the, the testimony, testimony of, God. of God. The third ark is the one that Moses' mama put him in and sent him down the river. Ah. And what does that do? <laughs> it holds the testimony of God. Okay, how many people were on the ark? Eight. Eight, yes, eight. Nicely done. And eight means it's the number of <laughs> new beginnings. Okay. And so we're going to... and I. That's another thing I want to do, we just don't have the time, is I would like to do a number every week. And I'm trying to figure out how we get that worked in. Or maybe I'll just mail them to you. Um, then it says, and God remembered Noah. And it's, it's not like God was, you know, watching Netflix and thought, oh, the guy I left on the stove. Oh, no. <laughs> Zakar means it's translated as remember. And we talked about this last week. You know, you go up to the denominational church and there's an altar in the front and it always says, do this in remembrance of me. Or sometimes it'll just say remember. And we feed up there like sheep and depending on what denomination you are, they either shove something in your mouth or you pick something up or whatever. And then you eat it and you go back to your seat and they continue on with whatever it is they're doing. That's not it. Remember, zakar means... To remember and do. And do. Thank you so much. If you don't act on it, it's just like, oh, I forgot the guy on the stove. You know, you have to do something. So it says, God remembered Noah's car. So he's going to finish his plan. It's not as though he'd forgotten him, he knew he was there. Okay, 40 is one of those numbers. Every time you hear 40, think God's going to do something big. Because that every time there's 40, he follows whatever event that is with just some monstrous thing that he hasn't done before. So in the, in the flood, of course, remember there's 40 days, there's 40 nights, the rain stopped, it ran off, he stayed there for 40 more days. You know, there's all these 40s through this story. So you can be pretty much rest assured that something big is going to happen. And of course, uh, something big did happen. The ark lands on the seventh month of the 17th day. 
Why do we care when it left or when it landed? I mean, my gosh, we don't even use the same calendar. Why would they take up valuable space in Scripture with all these ridiculous details? The seventh month of the 17th day is... Anybody? Nobody would know this. Because the calendar moved. It's actually the first month, the 17th day. Okay, what's the first month, the 17th day? What's the first month, the 14th day? Passover. What's the first month, the 17th day? Feast of first fruits. That's when Jesus rose from the grave. When they left Egypt, they left when? On Passover, the 14th day of the first month. When they got to the Red Sea three days later, what day was that? First fruits. First fruits. It was the 17th day of the first month. And what did the Lord do? Split the sea. New beginning. It's always about this stuff. You know, none of this is coincidental. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. In fact, I would be somewhat disappointed if, if some part of our next new beginning doesn't happen on the seventh month, the 17th day, or the first month, the 17th day, depending on which calendar you're using. Because it's always that way. All through Scripture, it's that way. And I'm not setting a date or telling you what's going to happen, but I would be a little surprised if I found out something like Malachi chapter 4 or Hosea chapter 2 or Ezekiel 37 or something doesn't happen on that day. And that's one reason why so many people think the Passover is uh, associated with the end time somehow. And of course, I have no idea. No, Lord doesn't send me memos anymore, but uh, I'd be surprised. Okay, so then we get the actual flood. The flood comes 40 days, 40 nights. Water runs off 150 days. Ark crashes on Ararat. They wait, you know, for so many days. And then he sends the raven out. And of course, you all know the word in Hebrew for raven, right? Wanderer? Yes, that's it. It's Orab, which is where we get the word Arab. And an Arab is a Bedouin, a wanderer. And it's also the word for black and darkness. So from the very beginning, and even before this, we get this idea that uh, the Arabs, the, the people who inhabit the Sinai, that, 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 uh, oh boy, that whole area over there, those people have something to do with the blackness that's coming. And then we, we learn later, in fact, it, ties to the word Allah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great... Anyway, the point is, the flood came, and what happened? People died, yes? Everybody died except for the eight. Exactly. Who, were these wicked or holy people that died? Wicked, of course. Of course. No offense to the guy or guys who wrote the Left Behind series. But every time in Scripture you see someone taken, they're taken to destruction. The people who are left are the ones that are saved. And we 
are kind of taught that backwards. But I mean, even in the, in the Second Testament, you've got, you know, the servants come to the master. Okay, servants, Holy Spirit, comes to the master, God, says, an enemy, the Nakash, has planted seeds in your field, and tares are growing with the wheat. Well, we're the wheat, they're the tares. What happens in that parable? The master says, you know, they say, well, should we dig them up? And the master says, no, let them grow side by side. And when the harvest comes, then what? You take them away and you burn them. The rest you gather and bring to my house. So all through scripture, you're going to see this picture, if you look for it, that the ones who are taken are the ones who are destroyed. The ones who are left are the people of God. And we tend to get that wrong. Um, now, in all honesty, Enoch, in the first 10, in the first 10 generations, he was taken and was no more. What happened to him? Well, I don't know. guess he was raptured. Elijah, same thing, went up to Mount Pisgah, where Moses was buried, and was taken. He was no more. He didn't die. So there's this picture, too, of three groups of people. You've got the wicked who are killed and taken, taken and killed, I guess. You've got the saved who go through the tribulation and are taken to the master's house. And then you've got this group of people that are somehow raptured away. And again, I don't know how this is all going to play out exactly, but I do know that it's not going to play out the way we think it is. You know, we go out in the parking lot, we practice rapture, you know, practice, and we jump up in the air and, you know, come get me, Lord. Actually, you don't want to be the one that's taken. There will be two people at the well. One is taken and one is left. There will be two people grinding corn. One is taken and one is left. You've read all that and we think, oh my gosh, I want to be the one who's taken. No, you don't. You want to be the one who's left that's gathered into the master's house. So just, you know, I just mentioned that. Uh, he sends the raven, the orab, out, the dark bird. Dark bird's on his own, man. He doesn't care about you a whit. He does not come back. So he sends the dove out. The dove, you know dove in Hebrew, right? Yona, Jonah, same guy. Send the dove out, looks around, comes back, lands on his finger, sticking out the hole in the ark. Sends him out again a week later, comes back with an olive leaf. Okay, awesome. Then they wait 40 days, get off the ark, you know, and they start again, a new a new deal. God sends a rainbow as a symbol that he's never going to do this again. He is so thrilled. And you know what he was thrilled with? Moses, Moses uh, Noah got off the ark and then he did some stuff. And then God is just so excited by the things that he did. He puts the bow in the sky. Do you know what it was he did? Come on. It's right there. in. Yes. You people who read ahead, it's awesome. He builds an That's why he took seven of the clean animals and, you know, because he had to make a sacrifice, right? Which seems kind of weird. You know, you get off the ark, it's a whole new world. And the first thing you're going to do is kill a bunch of animals? Thank God. That's what he's yes, he was, he was <clears throat> praising the Lord. And the Lord, it says, smelled the aroma of, of the burning fat, which we know is awesome for us barbecue people. And he was so pleased he put a bow in the sky to promise to the animals 
and to the humans, he would never do that again. He would never flood the earth again. And there's a little asterisk right there. And if you go down to the bottom page, it says, but next time. <laughs> okay, no, it doesn't really say that. But it will say that later. Because next time it's going to be by fire. But anyway, he puts his rain. It's a covenant between God and man and animals. So it makes perfect sense that the first thing the enemy is going to do, the first chance he gets, is to take that covenant symbol and, and it turn it into something sick and perverted. That's exactly because that's the way the enemy works, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So now, the thing that Maimonides says actually caused the destruction of the entire earth, the enemy uses as, as their symbol for, you know, oh, this will be awesome. Right. Well, it will be awesome. Not for them so much, but for us, it will be awesome. Okay, so he makes an offering, and the offering means he's going to, uh, he's going to have to kill animals. He's going to have to shed blood, right? And we're, we're only in chapter 6 or 7 or 8 of the book of Genesis, of the 66 books and 400 and however many, 500 chapters there are. So we're in chapter 6, and already this is the second time that we see the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Remember the first one? Adam and Eve were cast from the garden. Mm -hmm. God did what? He clothed them in leather and animal skin. Where did he get those? Had to kill an innocent animal, right? There was blood shed. Okay, so this goes on and on again. Okay, then we get this weird story about how a ham, his son, which means inflamed or enraged. It's not, you know, he's... He's the unstable brother, right? He, uh, it, in, in King James, it says, saw the nakedness of his father. And we think, well, now, that's maybe, you know, I mean, not polite, but I can think of a lot worse things. Um, and that's, I don't know. It doesn't say. But throughout Scripture, maybe a hundred times, it talks about, do not uncover the nakedness of. And it goes through, you know, chapter and verse about who cannot have uh, sexual relations. There's only one group of people that actually can. That would be a husband and a wife. Everybody else, and he identifies specifically all these people. And it always says the same things. You cannot uncover the nakedness of your mother, your sister, your cousin, you know, whatever it is. So there's this implication that uncovering the nakedness of somebody is a euphemism for sex. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. All I know is the Bible says that this ham saw the nakedness of his father. uh, And and then it says nagat in in Hebrew. It's the word nagat, which means to, to stand boldly opposite. So it says he, um, you read it as told in scripture, he told his brothers about the nakedness of his father or whatever. But it, it means in Hebrew, he stood boldly against. So there was something going on here that he, he was not, he was breaking the rules. He was not, uh, whatever was happening was not awesome. And then it says, uh, Noah woke up and knew what his son had done. So if he had just viewed him from the door of the tent, how would Noah have known that? 
So there's something there that's going on that's not explained, and we don't really need to know because the the point is, as the point always is, um, his heart wasn't right. And there was something he stood boldly against, apparently, the truths of God. And so the, the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, took a, a blanket and backed into the tent and dropped it on Noah, you know, to cover his nakedness. And, and again, I don't know that the story that, you know, that the actual account or picture that plays in our mind is what the Lord has for us. I think the message is always that we are to be concerned with the truth of the Lord, the truth of the Bible. We're to protect it. That's why it says to keep it. That Hebrew word shamar, it means to guard it. We're to, to know the things of the Lord and we are to guard these things. And that's the picture of what Japheth and Shim did. They, they, to the best of their ability with what they had and was what available, and their hearts were right. They, they protected their dad. They covered him up, whereas the other brother didn't. So then you get into this, uh, um, he, he blesses the kids, right? And it's kind of, and this is actually the first time Noah has spoken. Noah hasn't said a word through this whole account. It's, it's things Noah did. He's the, apparently the strong, silent type. He didn't speak any words until we get to here. And he blesses his three sons. And it says Shem uh, will live in the, will be the, what does it say? Be the tent. Anyway, Shem is, and it, when we get to chapter 10, this is another one of those genealogy chapters. Oh no, what do I care who begat who and what their names were? Well, it's critically important if you want to understand what's going to happen at the end of time. Because every one of these names is a country, is a people. And to this day, some of those people use the same name. So we can go through the the the. Uh, table of nations it's called and we can identify nations from uh, Europe across the Middle East all the way to Russia and by the names of these kids and where they went so unlike chapter 5 where it said you know it was a story when we put the names together this is a map and this is a map we need to have if you have any hope of understanding what's going to happen at the end so he, he says his son Shem basically is going to be the religious one. And he's going to take off uh, to what we would call the Middle East. So Shem is going to be, say, the priest of the family. All of the things religious and uh, will belong to the descendants of Shem. And so these are the people who are the people of the Middle East. And these are the people who are Jews who are Christians, and today we call Muslims. And they're all fanatically religious. They adhere to their own, uh, you know, they, they recognize God, they recognize the Creator, they seek to serve after Him. Those are the children of Shem. And they've lived in the Middle East for the most part. Mm -hmm. And then you have Japheth, who it says will live in the tents of Shem, which just means, um, you know, we're not going to be the priests, but we're happy to attend. We'll come to church with you. But, you know, you guys deal with all the God stuff. 
And like everything else in Hebrew, it can be good or bad depending on the context. So all of Shem goes to the Middle East and we get Christians, Jews, and today Muslims uh, out of that. They're all religious, some good, some bad. Some follow the Lord, some don't. Some will follow the Lord, some never will follow the Lord. But that's the whole picture of the Middle East. It's just been a hotbed of, of religion, you know, God following from the time of Noah. Then the sons of Japheth went the other way. They went right. So they became the Europeans. They were the inventors, the explorers, the intellectuals. Those are the people who, well, are most like us because we're, you know, Europeans for the most part. Those are the people um, who have conquered the world, who have made most of the discoveries, who have set up... uh, Every governmental system that's ever been, these are the, the thinkers, and the, but they're not necessarily on board with the Lord thing. And most of them, you know, have been okay with the whole Christian thing, Jewish thing, you know, mostly Christian. They're, and they're happy to live in the tents of Shem and let somebody else figure out the God thing. And, you know, they are, eh, okay, you know, it's fine, no big deal. You can do it, you can not, doesn't matter to me. And that's kind of, how we are, you know, Europeans were typically Christians and, and now uh, 2,000 years after Jesus, Europeans aren't Christians. They're not Muslims either. They're just, you know, they're nothing. They're just sort of agnostic. They don't really care. Yeah, that's not a bit, that's never been a big thing for them. They've been about the exploring and the conquering and the creating and the art and the engineering and the languages and, you know, and all the things that the world needs, that's been those people. And then he says, Canaan, who's the son of Ham, Canaan will be a servant to both Shem and Japheth. And the reason he couldn't curse Ham is we learned this, I don't know, some weeks ago, when we found out that uh, Balaam could not curse the people of Israel because (laughs) God had already blessed them. So every time he tried to curse them, only blessings would come out of his mouth. And that's what we learned from the scripture from Moses was that you cannot curse someone that the Lord has blessed. And the Lord had already blessed Ham. So he had to curse his son, Canaan. Well, Canaan and his descendants went south. They became uh, what we would call black Africa. So you, you look at the way the world is today and black Africa according to, to Noah, were going to be servants of both Shem and Japheth. They were not going to amount to much. They, were, they, 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 they didn't have their own religion. They weren't capable or weren't given, you know, whatever. They were not going to be the conquerors, the explorers, the intellectual you know, and you look at Africa and they've... The Mormons believe that. They teach that. Well, I mean, there's a reason they teach it. Yeah. It's true. It's and true. if you look at the way the world is, that is exactly the way the world is. The blacks, you know, and, 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 and I'm not saying every black. I'm just saying from the curse of Noah 4,000 years ago or 4,300 years ago, mm-hmm. he was saying, look, the sons of Ham, Canaan and all those people who moved south 
into what is now, you know, Sudan and Ethiopia and Africa and all that stuff. They are going to spend their days in servitude to Shem and Japheth. Japheth is going to spend his days uh, conquering and creating and, and doing all that stuff, but basically missing the things of the Lord. And the sons of Shem are going to be the ones who are going to, to lead the charge to follow after the Lord. Now, some are going to get off the beam, but they're still dedicated. You look at uh, Esau and Ishmael and Cain and Nimrod and all of these people, and they were dead wrong, but they were dedicated. They, they were following after their God, doing what they wanted to do. That's wrong. But they had that same, they received the blessing of Noah to be that way. And they had a choice like Cain and Abel did, like Esau and uh, Jacob did, like Ishmael and Isaac did. They can go either way. And some chose to follow the Lord of truth and some chose to follow um, the Lord of the lie, I guess you could say. So, I mean, it's interesting just looking at what Noah said. It's always interesting looking at the blessings of the father to the children because thousands of years later, we can look back and go, oh my gosh, that's exactly what happened. And we know that any Ishmaelite, any Edomite, any uh, Amalekite, at any time, any Moabite, at any time, should they want to return to the Lord, to the God of Israel, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they can, and they're welcome. And the Lord gives them uh, plenty of time. We do the math 250 to 1, the Lord is in favor of mercy over judgment, is what he says. He's giving them plenty of time to return, but they don't. Some do, but most don't. And to this day, it's the same way. Some Canaanites or sons of Ham, some sons of Japheth, some sons of Shem will choose to follow the Lord God of Israel and be saved. And some won't, and they won't be saved. So it's, it's, it's not a curse in the sense that you can never be saved. I mean, for crying out loud, Ruth was a Moabite. She shouldn't, she, she was cursed in that sense. And the Bible will tell you that Moab, uh, Moab is cursed for 10 generations. Mm-hmm. But what happened after 10 generations? We got Ruth. And who was Ruth? The great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. David. Jesus, yeah. I mean, out of a Moabite. So the lesson is, it doesn't matter where you started. You could be in the deepest, darkest pit of Africa, surrounded by the worst possible horrible things, which we see today, and choose to follow the Lord. And we support uh, this place. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a Christian messianic sort of organization that has uh, churches in Ghana. And these guys, I mean, it is crazy what they do. And the people around them are so destitute and they live in such darkness that with a loaf of bread, they can show the love of the Lord. And these people are just coming to the Lord left and right. 
And all they, you know, they need the things that they need cost us nothing. We can send them a hundred bucks, and five hundred kids can be saved. You know what is it to us? It's nothing. So in the deepest, darkest, most remote places on earth, even to the children of Ham and Canaan, the Lord is always there and he's always available and his people are there and they can be saved. So when I say Noah cursed um, Ham, you know, I am not saying like the Mormons say or said, they don't say it anymore. They used to say that if you're black, you can't be saved because you've been cursed by God. That is absolutely untrue. They do teach it a little differently than what, what you're saying. Well, yeah. It, it wasn't until the like 1990s, though, <clears throat> that you could even belong to the Mormon church if you were black. That's right. So my question to any black Mormon is, why? why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, why? why? And, with, you know, with the recent events in Mexico, uh, I am... I was thinking that very same gosh. thing when you were saying that. Isn't that the saddest thing mm-hmm. that supposedly a Roman Catholic country with all yeah. these cathedrals and... Well, the, these... the thing that makes me sad is they're in Mexico because this country said you cannot worship the way you want to worship. Mm-hmm. It's illegal in this country to have multiple wives. Right, exactly. Well, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It says all things are profitable, or all things are legal, but not all things are profitable. Jacob, the patriarch of the 12 tribes, had four wives. Now, he didn't want four wives. It was, you know, it was a slippery slope for him to get there. But all through Scripture, it is clear that the Lord says the best thing is for a man and a woman, one husband and one wife. But he never says you can't have, as far as I know, and I, you know, Send me a letter if, if I'm wrong. That you can't have more than one wife. It's just maybe not the smoothest idea. Mm-hmm. And I personally can't imagine, you know, it's like I can, I can barely deal with one. And she's awesome. There's no better wife than this one. And if I had two or three of them, oh my gosh. But anyway, the point is, these people have been forced out of this country in part because this country wouldn't allow them to worship the way that they thought. So we, and it's not just us, the Mormon church changed and banned polygamy and all that stuff. And so they moved to a country where they could worship the way they want to. But it was just sad to me that they were down there and they've been killed. And this isn't the first group of them that's been killed Mm -hmm. because we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't let them and I don't know, right? You know, it's between them and God. It's not between me and them. And it just seems uh, sad to me that they were forced to go to a place like that. And the result is, you know, anyway. I think they said uh, it's been seven generations they've been down there. Yeah, it said almost 100 years they've lived there. So it's not like, you know, we just recently. But anyway, it, it just, I don't know, it just struck me as. But I, yeah, and it's the other thing is it's supposedly a Catholic country. But. Okay. The, the, the right, correct point is anybody can be saved if they accept. Right, exactly. God, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but if your heart's bad, your heart's bad. Okay, so then this, the, 
we're running a little behind, big surprise, I know. Uh, talks about Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, you know, and we all think, oh, what does that mean? He's a, you know, got himself a deer or something. Uh, no. It means Nimrod is a leopard. Gabor means powerful. Uh, Tashayid means uh, stronghold. And Panim is in your face. Same thing means then as now. So this Nimrod, it says, uh, was a powerful stronghold before the Lord. He was against the Lord. And it's the same wording that you see used in Esau. He was a mighty hunter as well. He was against the Lord. So this Torah portion talks about the one language, the Tower of Babel, which is a word for confusion. Um, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. Well, name is the word for authority uh, in Hebrew. So they, they, wanted the, they wanted God's authority, basically. Mm-hmm. So they, okay, so he came down, which is Yared, which we got from last week, confounded the language, scattered the people. We get all the generations of the people, which in chapter 10 become the table of nations and is critical to know. But then at the very end of the chapter, we get the generations of Shem again. But they're different this time. So if you look at that, you can make a case that it might say something like man's authority will be crushed by a Hebrew, uh, creating a split, an associate of the Hebrew speaks for the father. Or something. I don't know what it is. It's, you know, I didn't have uh, the resources to figure all that stuff out. But it, it seems like this second uh, recount of the generations is telling us something much like chapter 5 did. So anyway, that's, that's the Torah portion 